Welcome to the Psych and P podcast, where we talk all about the life and work of being a psychiatric nurse practitioner in various settings and types of practices. I'm your host, Matt Schroer, Rhymes of Flamethrower. In this episode, we learn about the true flexibility of being a Psych and P with Alice. Today's episode is most certainly not brought to you by Stephen Stahl, but is brought to you by a rather spicy curry. Alice, it is so good to see you. You and I go back a long way, longer than I think many people do to our misspent youth, (laughs) my misspent youth. You did all sorts of proper things and all that kind of stuff. But we knew each other, gosh, when did we first meet? I think I was in college. Like undergrad college? Undergrad college. Okay. Because it was after... I moved back after I graduated, then mm-hmm. I moved in with Wes and Scott, and I already knew you then. Yeah. So it must have been before. It was before. Yeah, no, it was before that. So it was like a summer. I think like we'd before. hang out like in the summers, like when I would be home from school. Yes. We would hang out then. That's right. Yeah. And then you and Scott and Wes lived together. Yes. And Wes and Scott and I were playing in a band, and I distinctly remember one night when you had been taking prereqs. I don't know, you're taking like A&P or micro oh, right. or something yeah. like that. And oh, you were right. taking it like at night. Yeah. 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 I was doing a lot of yeah weird schedule. So you came home and it was, I don't know, nine, 10 o'clock or something. I was working at the psych hospital at the time because I would do my prereqs in the morning okay. and then I would work at the psych hospital and I would come home. I worked the three to 11 shift. And so I would come home at 1130. Okay. That's exactly what yeah. it was because that was the time that we were just playing like PlayStation hockey all the time. Like every single night you would come home and be like, oh my God, have they (laughs) left? That's all they're doing. So that's what we would do is just play NHL, I don't know, 99 or 97 (laughs) or something like that. That was probably what was happening. So yes, Alice and I go back a long way and we probably didn't plan to do the same career. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I feel like I was at work one day and you just showed up and you're like, yep, I'm doing my clinicals here. I was like, what? Where have you been? What have you been doing? No, that 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 kind of is what happened. happened. Yeah. And then you precepted me for a minute. Totally small world. But this world that I'm so glad that we've stayed in touch and still get to hang out and talk because it's it really is just the small NP world that we it is a small world. And everybody really knows everybody, which is super cool. Yep. I love that about psych. Yeah. And you have done quite a few different things in your time as an NP. And so I am very excited to hear all about it. And I know everyone who's listening is excited to hear about it too. But tell us how you got started in nursing and how you became a psych NP. What led you to that? So the practice of psychiatry has been in my family for across both my mom and my dad's side. So I grew up in the shadow of a psychiatrist and a psychiatric nurse. So I had perspectives in my family from both sides. So when I was in college, I was thinking about, should I go down like the medical school track or go down the nursing track? And so my dad actually suggested, he's why don't you work at the hospital and see what you think about it? So I did. So as soon as I was able to work at the, like the local psych hospital, I started working there. I think it was when I was in college. So I would work there like in the summers and on my breaks. And I got to see both sides of what the work looked like. I got to see what the nurses did. I got to see what the psychiatrist did. 
And I actually really connected more with the role of the nurse in that environment. So that's how it all started. And then, of course, my mom was like, you should become a nurse practitioner because then my other issue is that sometimes I can be very indecisive about things. And so, <laughs> so one factor, not the deciding factor, but one factor was the flexibility that nursing offers. If you go into one area and you want to do something different, it's really easy to move around and do different things. And my perception of medicine was like, you have to make a commitment and then that's what you do for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and maybe that's not a, the correct perception or an accurate perception. But at the time, I was like, I want to give myself some space to have that flexibility. So that was another kind of reason why nursing, the nursing mm -hmm. path kind of came, came out. Well, and having your dad be able to tell you, like, you should do this or don't go down the route that I went down. Yeah. I think is telling a lot of time. He was stoic about it. I don't know. I don't think he really wanted to influence me either way because okay. I could see the psychiatrist practicing around me. And so what I observed was the nurses would be on the unit for eight hours. And one of the things I noticed is the lower you were on the hierarchy, this idea that like the I was like a mental health tech or whatever. And so it was like me and then the nurses and then the doctors in this yeah. kind of like arbitrary hierarchy. And the more... Like the lower you were on the hierarchy, like the more time you spent with people and the more you got to know them and the more you knew about them. Sure. And then the psychiatrist would come in and spend like five minutes talking to the person and make like life altering decisions for them. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa, that is a lot. Yeah. And then the nurses would be in the middle of those two perspectives where they spent all day with patients and really got to know what was going on with them, but also could really impact care in a meaningful way. And so I was like, I like that kind of middle ground. That just seems to be where like a vantage point that I think honors the person better because yeah. you actually form a relationship with them, but also impacts their care in a meaningful way. Yeah. Being able to have, like you said, the flexibility to be able to do lots of different mm -hmm. things and not be pigeonholed in one particular kind of area. Exactly. Which was nice foreshadowing for your entire That's, career, it's right? Kind of theme of the journey. Yes. Yeah. 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 So you decided on nursing and then you went to school to become an NP, right? Mm -hmm. So you did that and then you finished and then what happened? So I actually, while I was in school, I had a unique training experience because I got to train at the local state inpatient unit okay. where there were no NPs. So I was trained like a medical resident, like a psych resident mm -hmm. on the unit and had a great psychiatrist that I was working with. But it helped me see through an interprofessional lens what other disciplines in this space were doing and confirmed even more nursing was the right choice because this model's weird. So my first job after graduating was actually nursing on an inpatient unit for a little bit until I took my boards. So I worked at a different hospital as a nurse for six months and still run into nurses that I worked with to this day from that unit and yeah. patients that I worked with. Again, small world, right? I know, small world. So everyone don't burn bridges because like right. you will run into those people again. <laughs> And my first job was at a local community mental health agency. And I worked there for about four or five years. And then yeah. I started to get a little itchy. Mm. I needed to do the next thing. Yeah. But what was really cool about that job was I actually would, the acuity of the patients that we would treat at the community mental health center was the same acuity that I saw when I was in my clinicals on the inpatient unit. And even when I worked back as a tech, I, it was all the same people literally coming through all these different systems. Yeah. And so my, some of my patients that I, when I went to community mental health and I started get, I got my panel and they were like, here's your group of patients that you have now. I would see people that I knew 
from the inpatient units and they would remember me and they were like, yeah. Oh, and they would have names for me. I had all these nicknames. They're like, Oh, I remember when you would wear combat boots every day to work. And I remember we would call you Alice blue gown and they held these <laughs> names for me. And it was, hopefully they were all really nice fun. and not, these are all, it was all good. Okay. Connections. That's it good. Was all good connections. That's good. So Alice blue dress. You, yeah. <laughs> but you cool. were on the act team. Oh my gosh. It was my favorite job. Yeah. The talk about that a little bit because yeah. Treatment, yeah. A certain community treatment was my favorite. So the day-to-day of that looked like at this community mental health center, there were all kinds of different teams and they all had different levels of like acuity. And the ACT team had the patients that had the highest level of acuity. So these are folks who had this team not existed. It's a very like intensive case management and treatment team. And it's designed to replace the intensity of treatment that you would get in an inpatient unit. And they call ACT teams like hospitals without walls. So the idea is that a person who otherwise would be living in a psychiatric institution for like for their whole life, maybe has the opportunity to live in the community as with all these amazing intense supports wrapped around them. And so I got to work on the team that was I was just the provider on what was essentially a case management team It was really a case management that kept these individuals out of the hospital. And the case managers knew the patients like so well. They saw where they lived. I saw where they lived. I got to do home visits. So I would do home visits or if there was a crisis in the community, then I would go out or I would get connected on the phone. I was on call 24 seven and don't miss that part. But the team itself was interdisciplinary. We had nurses, social workers, we had peer support. We had NP and then we had me and then we had a psychiatrist who oversaw the team and who would advise. But I was independently doing the medication management. Yeah. And and I had a really small, a relatively small caseload. So I had maybe 80 to 100 patients that I was seeing at any given time. And I but I would see them like once a week. Yeah. Or once a month. I'm seeing them really frequently. So that really you really get to know somebody when you're seeing them that often. And then you start to understand what it takes for them to live independently in the community, which is the best part. For sure. And not have to be locked inside of an inpatient unit for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Because if you weren't sick when you got there, you were definitely sick when you live in a place like that constantly. Yes, absolutely. So we did anything that we could to avoid a hospitalization. So we had all access to all these different we call them diversion services. And it was a way to, if somebody was in a crisis that didn't necessarily rise to the level of needing to have, be like involuntarily committed to a state institution, like the most intense level of intervention, yeah. then we had other places where we could house the person, get them out of the whatever environment is causing stress for them or is contributing to their symptoms right now and give them a break for a few days and work with them and then get them back to where they're living. So... A good example of that might be like if someone's housing gets like they get evicted or something like that or something happens with their housing or like their family kicks them out or there's a fight or whatever, like something that doesn't require legal involvement or anything like that. They just have like a life disruption. A lot of times people just get hospitalized for that kind of stuff. Like sure. it's not really a psychiatric issue. It's like a life stress issue. Yeah. And then we have a place for that person to go voluntarily just to cool off we can check in with them they're getting good oversight and care but they're not having to deal with the disruption and the i guess disruption is the best i almost said like oppression i don't know hospitals can be very oppressive places especially if the reason that you're there is not because of treatment 
It's for a great sure. place to get treatment, but if you're there for some other reason, just to be in a contained environment, it's not the best place. Agreed. Yeah. No, I always say that the best breath of air that you will ever take is when you walk outside of an inpatient psych unit. Oh my gosh. It's, you know that you've been there all day long and then you come out and you're like, oh, okay. All right. And I got to leave at the end of the day. So <laughs> if you couldn't, how difficult that would be. And so you're right. So having these other means of treatment mm -hmm. aren't so intense or... Yeah, disruptive. So, I, Matt, I learned that way of delivering care that at that community mental health clinic was really unique. So, like at other places where I've worked, if you getting into the inpatient unit, like there were no other options. It was yeah. either if you're not safe to go home, then you're going inpatient, whether you want to or not, because yeah. there's nowhere else for you to go. So, having access to these different levels of care that that experience like informed like everything else I did like yeah. after after that all the work I did after that yeah so creative solutions to things and not having a one size fits all model about everything exactly which exactly. I think that we all try to do like you don't immediately just say everyone gets Prozac you walk in the door like you get Prozac because you've walked in the door there's a lot of different things that you should be doing and ways in which you can tailor treatment specifically to that person minimize the impact. And in negative ways, not re-traumatizing people. Exactly. Because, oh my God, if I got put in an inpatient psych unit, I don't know if I would ever be the same again afterwards. It would be, and again, people need to go there sometimes. There are times when it's absolutely essential that you go into the hospital. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of times where people come out and that's a life-changing experience and sometimes it's not a, in great ways. It's a life-changing experience. Yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's the right thing to do to be able to offer all of these different levels of intervention and to really be able to customize a plan for somebody when they're in crisis is it's the right thing to do. But the reason that it was so successful is because it's cost effective. Yeah. And that's the other side of it is we're in Tennessee. The state of Tennessee has a Medicaid program called TenCare. And if you want to go to a psychiatric hospital under 10 care, then you have to be at a very high level of acuity to do that. Yep. And it's very expensive for the state to foot the bill for these lengthy inpatient stays. And so when this organization came along and said, hey, we can help you save hospitalization costs, we'll create other types of programs to help people who don't, who can't stay at home but who need a place to go that's not the hospital, yeah. we'll create those programs. We'll staff them. We'll monitor them. We'll make sure they're compliant. Like, we'll run them. In exchange, we want a higher compensation for the care that we're providing to everybody in our agency. And that's how the deal that they worked with the state, which is brilliant. That's sure. kind of like a value-based care model. It's what I think a lot of models of care are moving to with more accountable care, yeah. is to say, if you can prove that your model of care reduces costly and like you I think you were alluding to this like sometimes not effective yeah. modes of treatment then will invest in the preventative care that you're doing to keep that from happening and working at this community mental health center was so formative in so many ways because it showed me a system of care that was interprofessional where the nurse practitioners ran these teams yeah. and we all had a supervising psychiatrist but it was the nurse practitioner who showed up every day ran the treatment team ran the case conferences, managed the day, got information from the case managers, ran their clinics. And it showed me that it was possible for people with serious and persistent mental illness 
to live in the community who otherwise would be hospitalized for their entire life. Uh, it showed me a system of care that was more than this value-based accountable care kind of model. Yeah. So for people who are interested in health policy and that kind of stuff, it was it was so interesting. Because yeah. then you go to other health systems and it's all fee-for-service. You get paid for every appointment and every lab that you draw and every intervention that you do. And when you're compensated in that way, you're incentivized to do more than you really have to for people. Yeah. And it imbalances the power dynamic too, especially for this population where I'm working at the community mental health (laughs) clinic. I get paid the same whether you take 12 medications or one medication. I get paid the same whether you go to the hospital or not. I get paid the same. So I have no incentive to prescribe you more medications or, or even to prescribe you medications that you're like that you're asking for. A lot of people come in to be like, I'm not going to come here unless you give me X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, okay, I don't get paid for you to walk in the door like I would in private practice. Sure. So it was a nice way to kind of balance things out where you're not incentivized by, and you're not pressured to maybe do things in practice that maybe you make compromises just to keep the referrals coming in. So it's nice not to have to think about that, to work in systems where you're really there to provide best care and you don't really have to think about, how can I keep this patient coming in the door? And you can stay true to your ideals and the philosophy that you have, which I think keeps you in practice longer. When you Mm -hmm. start doing things that don't feel good, the way that you deal with that is you just emotionally check out. Yeah, And and you're not providing good care anymore because you're like, whatever, I don't care. I just need to do this thing to continue to have this person show up and I still get paid, but I don't love what I'm doing. Like you can't live in that value system for very long before you're like, I can't do this anymore. And you burn out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That type of environment, there was a level of burnout, I think, in that environment just because the intensity of the acuity of the patients was so high. And it was a 24-7 call and people went into crisis and there's just a lot. And so it was very interesting in that way. Yeah. And at this, and my team, being on the assertive community treatment team, I had a little bit more autonomy than I think your typical community mental health provider might, where I got to manage the schedule. I had some flexibility in the scheduling and I could do home visits. And so on home visit days, in the mornings, I would see people in the clinic and I might see a person every 15 minutes. And so I would see eight or 12 people in the morning and then take lunch and then go out in the field. But because I'm driving to somebody's house, I might see two or three people in the afternoon. And that was like really nice. So it was really nice to be. It was different than your peers who were in the clinic. Yeah. I was like, this is sweet. I'll take 24 seven call to be able to see three people in an afternoon Yeah, and go to their house and meet their family. And it's Mm -hmm. really cool. I remember when I was a student with you, I went to, the Kroger that was by my house that was frequent frequented by patients that you saw and who could live in the community. I'm like, oh, we saw them last week and he's buying food. And, I'm, and it was just it was really nice that I could see this person and like doing normal things at the grocery store, living their life and doing cool stuff, which was great. That OK, you said grocery store that can I tell you an anecdote Please. about one of my patients? that yes. I had? So I tell this I would tell this anecdote to in my Subsequent jobs, I would use this anecdote as a way to illustrate to people who maybe have not worked with individuals with schizophrenia or serious mental illness what's possible for people if you just understand what is going on with them, like just demystify their symptoms a little bit. So we had a patient who had been living with schizophrenia for a really long time, had pretty intense symptoms, and he was stable in his condition. We're not changing his medications. 
He's not going to the hospital. He is living with his condition. He's living by himself. He has case managers that check on him. And one of the things that case managers would do, they would pick him up and take him to the grocery store. It used to be on like Fatherland. It was called like Martin. Wait, it was called um, Bill Martin Foods. Bill Martin Foods. Yeah. Speaking of Bill Martin's. It's closed now. I know. I it's, think it's gone. It's gone. It's turning into it's like gentrified apartments. Or yeah. Something. Some fancy East Nashville place. Yes. And it was like, it's like a small, so it's not like a Kroger or Publix. Like it's a small kind of like locally owned grocery store. Yeah. And all the staff knew this guy. So the case manager would take him to the grocery store and the whole time he's shopping, he is responding to auditory hallucinations in a way that is alarming to people who don't know him and has a lot of profanity, but he would be responding to his voices and he and he was great. He was so nice. He would recognize you and be like, hey, how you doing? And then immediately he'd be like, F you, MFR. <laughs> he didn't say that, but you get the yeah. idea. Very colorful language. And then he would be muttering under his breath. He'd be like, F you. And so if you encountered him and you didn't know him, you would think that he needed to be in the hospital. Yeah. Because he's openly responding to hallucinations. But at the same time, he is grocery shopping. He really, the case manager is there to give him a ride and just be there. And he's doing his own shopping and he's checking out. And the whole time he's checking his groceries out, he's cussing up a storm. And the people, everybody there knows him. And so he was able to do a basic activity of daily living and do it himself and do it in the community with basically transportation support. And that's what he needed. Yeah. And so later in a job that I had fast forwarded to when I worked in a health and human services company that basically contracted with state governments or state government agencies. And so in in this case, we contracted with state Medicaid agencies to do different kinds of clinical work for them. And one of the things that we were tasked with was doing evaluations on people who had conditions like this guy had, who had schizophrenia, who had serious and persistent mental illness. And our job was to describe their condition in a way that if a person who in this case, these are individuals who have these conditions and they're going to nursing homes. So imagine this person I just described to you who's going to the grocery store and he's cussing up a storm. He falls and he breaks his hip and he has to go to rehab for eight weeks. He's now in an institution, not because of psych reasons, but because he broke his hip and he needs to have rehab. And now he's in a nursing home and he's acting the same way he acts in the grocery store but nobody there knows him, his case manager isn't there, and he's in a completely unfamiliar environment, he's stressed out, he's hurting, he just had surgery, let's say, and so his symptoms are probably even worse than they would be under optimal circumstances. And then imagine the CRNA or the, the person coming in to take care of him and they see him and he's having these symptoms in this way, they'd be like, you can't be here. You need to be in the psych hospital. And then he's in the psych hospital. And then the chances of him ever getting out are like so low. So our job was to do an assessment of this person before they go to the nursing home and then write a report that describes this person has schizophrenia. They typically at their baseline, they have auditory hallucinations that they're responding to in this way. They're going to say cuss words. They're going to, you might think that he's cussing at you, but all you need to do is just lock eyes with him and speak to him in this way, and then he will recognize you, and, yeah. then he'll, and then you'll encounter a very polite and very engaged person. And so that that was the work I did after, that's like fast-forwarding, like after I did my PhD and got a post out mm-hmm. working for this company, and that's those are the types of reports that we would write. And so my job was to train people to write reports that described people's conditions in this way, 
that if somebody who had never worked with somebody with schizophrenia read this report, they'd be like, oh, okay, I understand how to interact with this person so that they can get the care that they need in the nursing home. I know that it's when they get to this point that they need to go to the hospital. Yeah. What I'm seeing right now is not hospital territory. So it, that was really rewarding work because it translated what I learned at the community mental health center and working with patients who were thriving outside of hospitals. But if they were observed through a different lens, like at a nursing home or a different system of care, their baseline would be interpreted as needing acute intervention, which was not necessary, which would be disruptive and would be expensive. And they're not getting the physical care that they need at exactly. the same time because the psych, psych hospital. Psych unit, they're not going to get the rehab that they need. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were jumping around a little bit. But so <laughs> after you left the community mental health center, you decided to go get a Ph.D. I decided to go get a Ph.D. OK. Please. Why did you decide to get a Ph.D.? I knew that I wanted, so all these observations that I just shared with you were starting to, they were starting to percolate. I was observing in this community mental health center, one of the other observations that I had, you just alluded to it, which is the physical care, the physical health care that people get when they have serious and persistent mental illness. So we would have patients that we would be very finely tuning all of their medications and we would finally get them on, oh my gosh, the feeling that you get when you finally find a regimen that works after all that trial and error yeah. and you finally get the thing that controls the symptoms and that the patient actually will take every day and they're feeling good. Oh <laughs> yeah. my gosh. It's like when you get there, it can take years to get there sure. for some people. And sometimes you got to wait till new medications come out and then you get it. As many of these medications come with a lot of side effects that a general practitioner would be like, oh, what the heck this yeah. is. We cannot have this metabolic syndrome, weight gain, diabetes, all this stuff. So our threshold for med changes was once we got to this sweet spot, it was like weighing the risks and the benefits yeah. of the metabolic syndrome. You have a person who is not being hospitalized. You have a person who is thriving in the community. Their symptoms are under control. They're working like they're achieving all these amazing things. And then on the other side of that, you have a physically pretty unhealthy person yeah. if you're like on paper. So they would go, they would come to us and they get all their medications tweaked and then they would go to their primary care clinic and their primary care doctor would be like we can't have you on the Seroquel like you need to tell your doctor to take you off of this and put you on Geodon or put you on some other medication or in some egregious cases like they would basically give the patient permission to stop taking their meds which is catastrophic sometimes oh my gosh. yes it was infuriating yes and so I can't tell you how many phone calls I've made to primary care doctors just be like, look, here's the thing. So I my issue is neurologists. Oh, really? <laughs> neurologists. <laughs> I was tend messing with your mood stabilizers. <laughs> oh, well, I think they fashion themselves sometimes as Freud, know the brain. Right. So I know everything that the brain does and mental illness is part of the brain. And so I know how to do that too. And I'd get people that like, I started on something and my people are kids. And so a lot of times ADHD mm -hmm. medicines or SSRIs or things like that. And then they would stop them, swap them to something else and then put them on squirrely neurology meds like Topamax and things like that. Yeah. They're like, why are you on that? Yeah. And they'll be on seven different medicines. And I'm like, yeah, but like stay in your lane, do your stay thing. Your yes. <laughs> yes. Do your thing and consult. That's yeah. what's great about it. Hey, I'm concerned about this person's A1C or this person's blood pressure. Like, mm -hmm. help me understand how Clausril is helping them. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we had time. We had time to carved out for consulting calls because that's just another that's another like time slot you need to make those phone calls and stuff. Anyway, for it's sure. a whole practice management kind of situation. Yeah. But so I got really interested. I was like, what if this community mental health agency had everything in its four walls? They had the pharmacy, 
that's how we were able to manage Clozeril so effectively is we had a laboratory on site and we had a pharmacy on site. And all the pharmacists knew exactly how to manage Clozeril. They knew exactly what they were like. We can't dispense this today. You got to get the blood work. And we're like, oh, we can just go down the hall and get the blood work. You have it and you'll have it by the end of the day. Oh my gosh. I The worst time I ever had was when I worked in community mental health and I worked, it was me and a psychiatrist and I saw the kids and he saw the adults and he saw tons of people's schizophrenia and lots of them were on Clozeril. It was a Friday and he would leave at 3.30 on Friday. But mm-hmm. inevitably, a lot of the patients that he saw, because he saw a lot of people on Friday, those medicines would get triggered to get renewed mm-hmm. on Fridays. Mm-hmm. And so they would see him in the morning or something like that. But in- inevitably, at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon, I am scrambling through faxes, trying to find labs to send to oh. Walgreens or whatever yeah. to say, no, he this guy needs his Glossoril yeah. like this weekend and it's fine, but they can't fill it. So being in a situation like that where everything is in-house had to be dream. It was such a dream. Yeah. Again, it's like another thing on the list of, well, this is an optimal system. If you just co- like co-locating things, it seems really easy, right? Mm-hmm. Everything in one building, people are more likely to utilize the resources. Like yeah. that's not rocket science. Yeah. That's pretty obvious. If you give people transportation, they will come to their appointments. Yeah, no duh. Like that. Yeah. I almost said something else. But yes, that's an obvious solution to people coming to their appointments. So this agency would like solve for all these things. And one of the things that I was really interested in solving for was what if primary care was part of those wraparound services? And so I wanted to study integrated health systems. But as it turned out, for me to pursue my PhD, I wasn't going to be able to work five days a week in like this burnout central like i loved it but at the same time there was an expiration date on my ability to do this and i i tried to negotiate can i do a four-day work week can i do this and they're like no so i was like can i do part-time but still keep my benefits and they were like no i just need like one day a week but anyway so we tried to negotiate it didn't work out i get it like it's a high demand environment so a colleague of mine worked at the va he had a four-day work week i'm like how do i get in on that action four-day work week action (laughs) I actually applied for for the VA for the mental health intensive case management team. So I worked on that team for about, it was almost a year. That was, that was like the dream job. That was such a cool job. There were a couple of things I didn't like about it, but my favorite part was my caseload on the, we called it the MICM team, mental health intensive case management, was 15 patients. I had 15 patients on my panel. Like, period. Period. Wow. I was responsible for 15 patients. And the require. I know. Did you just call them every day? You had to see them. Yeah. Hey, it's Alice. It's Tuesday morning. (laughs) Let's talk. So you were responsible for what was happening with that person, no matter what was happening with them. Okay. okay. So the requirement was they had to be seen in the community, in their home, in the community. They had to be seen face to face once a week. And so if they were coming to the VA for an appointment, that was great because you just go downstairs and you see them in the waiting room for their neurology appointment, for example. Yes. But typically you're seeing them in their home. So I had a one hour, all my patients lived within one hour from the VA and it was all like south of Nashville. So my, I went as far as Mount Pleasant, I think was my furthest. And so the VA gives you a car. And for a while, I didn't have... Is it like a Hummer or something? <laughs> I know, right? Like an armored vehicle. Yeah. I like, drove a tank to work. It was like an eight-ton truck. <laughs> I felt like I was driving an eight-ton truck because we... For a minute, I didn't have an assigned vehicle. So I just had to get one from the fleet. So I had to make a good... I was like the buddy to the fleet guy. And I would go downstairs. I'd be like, all right, 
what can I take today? And sometimes it would be like a tiny little sedan or something. Yeah. But a lot of times it was like an 18 passenger van. It was like a huge cargo van. Nice. That, or it would be like a huge passenger van. One time it was a cargo van. It was just like a front, two front seats and just feet of space. <laughs> so you go pick would, like, up drywall I would later? Yes, yeah, so I could pick up drywall later. And so I'd be driving this huge VA van just like around town seeing people. <laughs> and sometimes I would take people to their appointments or I would... There was one guy that I would take him to McDonald's. I'd be like, you want to go through the car wash today? He's like, yeah, I want to go to the car wash today. Sweet. So we'd go to McDonald's. We'd hit the car wash. And then in That's the car. That's a big day. Yeah. Like, I'd be, we'd be having conversations, and I'd be doing, like, a psyche valve, basically, mental status exam in the car. And we'd just be driving around. How and, disarming is that? Because it's not this clinical setting. And I think mm-hmm. people are more open and honest if they don't feel like they're taking a test or don't feel like somebody's like observing them or they're in this sterile like room, how cool is that? It was so cool. Yeah. There's one guy I would meet him at McDonald's over the one over by on West End and we would meet every week. And then we would, we had the whole system. Like one time I would go to his house and then the next week he would come into town and we'd meet at McDonald's. And he was a little bit higher. He was, I don't want to say like higher functioning, but his situation was he did not have a serious and persistent mental illness. He was in a situation where this is another ties into the theme of being a specialist and being able to see things through a different lens. This is a person who had, he was in his sixties. He had his a kind of a psychotic break and he was hospitalized and he was put on Zyprexa and he was on like 20 milligrams of Zyprexa and they were like going to transfer him to a nursing home to live mm-hmm. for the rest of his life. And I, I don't know how I even met this person there. Maybe they, they were, there was some, there's a consult. I think I went to see him because somebody was like, maybe we should try Mickum before the nursing home. And thank God they did. Yeah. Cause this person had some kind of a break. He did beautifully on Zyprexa. And then, and I think he was also on an antidepressant. And I think what it came down to is he had some psychosis associated with depression and there was a lot of stress and there's something going, it was some family stressor or something going on. I don't remember the details, but it got to the point where he was, I want to come off the Zyprexa and my community mental health brain flipped on. I'm like, no, this is keeping you at home. Like this is keeping you out of the nursing home. Yeah. Like we're not going to, we're not going to mess with success. We're not going to take, cause my fear was we start bringing the meds down and then the symptoms start to come back. That was your and act team lens. That was the act team lens. Yeah. But he was he was living, he had a supportive family. He had a lot of protective factors. I, and I was seeing him every week. So I was like, all right, we'll do a really slow taper. And then we'll do, anyways, long story short, we got down to five milligrams. He was still doing great. We took him off. Like he was just on Celexa after that, mm. thing like that. And we had a great relationship. Like he would call me with questions and stuff and it was just one of those things that my role in the Mickham team wasn't, that was another kind of weird thing is I wasn't the nurse practitioner on the team. I was like a case manager, mm. also happened to be a nurse practitioner. So I was fulfilling a case management role that also happened to know about diagnosing and prescribing. So that was an interesting twist. Yeah. And there was a psychiatrist who did all the med management. So technically I wasn't responsible for the medication regimen, but I would make recommendations for adjustments and things like that. And so I would coordinate with the psychiatrist to be like, Hey man, I want to take this guy off of Zyprexa. What do you think? And he's like, fine. So I still had a lot of autonomy, but I wasn't like the final authority. So that kind of gave me some interesting flexibility in that role. But the coolest part was just like people in their homes. Yeah. You see how they live and the view that you cannot ever get in the clinic. You see how they interact with their families. You see how their families interact with them. And sometimes their families are like the pits. Yep. Their families are not supportive. They're not great. And you can see why 
their symptoms manifest a certain way, like if this is their living environment. And so yeah. you get a lot of empathy and understanding. And then you take that and you apply it to all of your patients in the future. You're just like, man, I wonder what it's like for you at home. Yeah. And you can start to granulate in those experiences and then your empathy just goes way up. You can start to anticipate what might be going on that maybe the person you're treating doesn't know how to tell you or doesn't want to tell you. And you have to fill in those details. You learn their story, yeah. I think, in a more complete way. Yeah. If you're living in a terrible environment with mm-hmm. people who are cruel and awful to you, how are you going to be happy? You're never going to be right. happy. You're never going to be fulfilled. And your mental illness is going to be worse. And you're going to use substances to cope with all of that. Yeah. I think it's so important to consider all of those things. And we get this really not accurate snapshot in a right. clinic setting. Yeah. How can you possibly, in the small amount of time that you have, especially if your role is primarily medication management, yeah. you really are limited to what's going on with the meds. Mm. and But then there's so much that's going on where there are so many other things that you can do that medications aren't going to touch yep. that would have a huge impact on somebody. Yep. And having a, being able to anticipate or having a line of sight to that yeah. is so important because you can't medicate someone's toxic family. No. But you can medicate maybe the ability for the person to be able to show up to therapy to process their toxic family yes. and to figure out what they're going to do. Medicine helps you do good work in therapy. There you go. Yes. That's perfect. Yeah. And the Mickham team was fun. But then, this is the convoluted journey of my career, if you're ready. I need to edit this down. <laughs> no, it, <laughs> no, it's super interesting. So while I was at the VA, I was also going to the PhD program. And as it turned out, one of the faculty in my PhD program was also faculty for this VA program called VA Quality Scholars, which I had no idea existed. And at this point, I had been working at the VA for six months. And this was a a program that was available to physicians who were also pursuing like a master's in public health. So people going through an MPH program and then pre-doctoral or post-doctoral nursing students, which was actually pretty new. Like it had only been a couple of years that this fellowship was open to nurses, okay. but it was actually Vanderbilt that was part of the interdisciplinary. This is I, So I got my PhD at Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt was the academic affiliate to this VA. And so it was actually the the key leadership at Vanderbilt who got together with the key leadership at for the VA quality scholars and was like, hey, y'all need to start including nurses in this. You have nurses working at the VA. You have nurse researchers at the VA. The VA supports independent practice. The VA supports nurse researchers. The VA is really nursing forward. and As they should be. Yes, so it's just, it's like, it makes sense. So like our, the former leadership here at Vanderbilt was really instrumental in making that happen. Mm-hmm. And so I had the benefit from that. And I think my roommate, when I was, we, I shared an office with her, I think she was the first nurse scholar at our VA. Like it just happened. So yeah. it's really cool being on the leading edge of that. Sure. And so it was still in its kind of infancy of being an interprofessional group of people whose job was, so as part of the fellowship, I actually got paid to be in the fellowship. So I moved away from doing the mental health intensive case management and I moved into doing a role at the VA that I could do like a couple days a week. So I started working on the suicide prevention team. Yeah. And so my role on the suicide prevention team, I had clinic one day a week and then I had four days a week where I was participating in the quality scholars stuff and doing my PhD. So there was coursework and extra, but it was all quality improvement focused. Mm. So coming out of that, I had this quality improvement background. 
And I had already done quality improvement projects in the VA, which was an amazing thing to be able to put on my CV. Yeah. And I used the fellowship time to actually do my PhD dissertation. So I could access VA data on suicide prevention. And so I got permission to use that data towards my PhD work. So that's like the key, right? Like you got to make things work, multiple Hmm. different things. Bit of a, I could use the PhD to support my scholarship with VA quality scholars to support my clinical work and to support my PhD. So it can be all done at the same time, but only if studying one topic serves all three of those goals. (laughs) Sure. The stars have to align just in such a way. So like you worked and you did your PhD and you like did clinical. And I'm like, yeah, but... It was basically all the same thing. And I it was just one big ball of things. boxes to doing the same thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then you went to work for the place doing the nursing home assessment kind of stuff after that, right? Yeah. So that's yes. where I ended up. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I did a fellowship after my postdoc. And then one thing led to another. And I ended up going off the academic path and onto the private sector path. Yeah. And ended up in the corporate sector or whatever you want to call it for about seven years. Yeah. So I worked for this company that did these assessments and then that company got acquired by a bigger company. And then I had all these different opportunities within that company to do different things. So that was a really just, that was a really interesting journey. What did, what did you like and dislike about working in a corporate setting that didn't involve direct patient care? One of the things that I did was the innovation and the creativity and the ability to be a subject matter expert. Because mm. at this corporation, it's not like a group full of psych NPs. Like you're the only psych NP or even the only clinician. In my case, I was the only master's level clinician working in our department. And then there were a lot of nurses and some social workers and then a lot of administrative people. Yeah. And, and then we partnered with health organizations. So it was still health focused, but I was the only... And then I, oh, there was, there happened to be some physicians there too, who were functioning as medical directors. And interestingly, I was the clinical director. And so actually all the medical directors and physicians that contracted with us reported to me. So it was a nice (laughs) role reversal there. That That is nice. Yeah. How'd that go? Did they, were they, were they okay with that? Oh yeah. Interestingly, one of the people that was on, we had a a small group of contracted psychiatrists that we hired to do work for us as independent Mm -hmm. contractors. And so I was in charge of that network and one and ironically, one of the people on that team was my old supervising physician from the community mental health agency. Oh, that's so hilarious. we had a little reunion. That's hilarious. It was actually pretty good. But again, it's a small world. So yeah. these most of the psychiatrists were from the local area or had worked here. And so I knew half of them already from working from just like working at the hospital. So I remember when you were a resident. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing you do rounds or whatever. So it was nice to that those connections like actually really help to support for they, sure. they really make things easier yeah in life because you can always reach out to those people absolutely and it's hard to be in that sometimes it's i one of the things that i had to do was give was actually help the it's like an office space it's like the jumping to conclusions matt guy <laughs> help the it people talk to the customer and it's sometimes it was really hard because the physicians were so focused on one very particular scope of the work that when one of the folks who maybe was like a social worker or a nurse or like an LPN, their job was to call the psychiatrist and ask questions about the report that they wrote. 
to ask clarifying questions or to say, hey, can I change your stuff to look at like this? Because this is how the customer wants it. Yeah. So it's totally like that guy from yeah. office space. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes the physicians would be like not happy about, they're like, I don't want you changing anything that I write. Or there would be this dynamic that had to be managed because these folks submitting their reports had to get the work done. And they, sometimes the psychiatrist would hold the work hostage and they wouldn't allow changes to happen so it could be submitted. So yeah. sometimes we had to manage that dynamic a little bit. And so know, having known a lot of these providers already, it was easy to pick up the phone and be like, hey, man, like if we could just make it look like this, it would mean that you could get paid <laughs> and, and we could submit your work. And I know it's not what you're used to, but having had that kind of inner, not just the relationships, but also understanding from an interprofessional perspective for sure how to manage those interactions because these are all psychiatrists who are typically that's a blanket statement but many of these psychiatrists were like this is their retirement plan like yeah. doing this kind of work and so they've been doing this in the tail end of 40 50 year careers sure. so they're very established in their methods yeah. so i think having that background helped me to manage some of those things but what a perfect role for a nurse practitioner to be able to bridge that gap yeah. and see and understand the language that they're using and the methodology and be like, I see why you did that, but this is where they want this to go. But then having that knowledge of understanding many different perspectives mm-hmm. that I think nurses do a much better job at than a lot of people. Oh my gosh. Cause ner- nurses are like the hub of the wheel. Like they have to connect to all of these different, yeah. well, you got to get your radio, you got to get to radiology. You got to get the respiratory therapist here. Like the nurse has to manage all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, being working at community mental health is like the fundamental part the way the care gets delivered in this model is through the case manager like in that model yeah that's how the care gets delivered and i'm at the end of a spoke of a wheel and the case management and the patient are at the center of it and it's the case manager who's reaching out to all this so i'm just a piece of the team yep and in other parts of healthcare, it's kind of the nurses managing all of that. And the physician's just the piece of the team. The mm. physician's not necessarily running the show. Yeah. But that's what's so interesting about nursing is that they have a line of sight to all of the different parts of the care that the that the patient is receiving. Because some of the care doesn't require a physician's order. For sure. Like, you're, remember all your nursing interventions from Absolutely. nursing school? Yes, yes. <laughs> like, and from the care plan? Like, I don't even, need you to tell me that I can elevate the head of the bed. That's right. I can do it right now. Oh, my gosh. That totally came up in a VA Quality Scholars Conference that we did. We had somebody presenting about, it was like a surgical resident, I think. And she was saying something about physicians' orders and why was the nurse doing this if it wasn't ordered? And, like, all the nurses in the back of in the room were just like... <laughs> nursing interventions excuse me there's a ton of stuff that we can do that you that we can do independently without i've got a hard drive full of care plans so there was like a little interprofessional kind of heat going on right there (laughs) it was great that's awesome but it was very cool and the other thing that i took away from that was like was like the language that we use is really important not just in an interprofessional context like that's where we like I've I still do this to this day that if anybody ever calls me a mid level I'm like don't do that Ugh. I'm like you can't use that word around nurse practitioners yeah. because you are like it doesn't matter how cool you are that will be a strike against you I have a friend who is the chief development officer of a local healthcare organization and she called the other the PAs and the NPs in her practice mid levels and I'm like you have got to strike that term mm-hmm. from your vocabulary and never use it again because I mm-hmm. promise you. You will burn lots of bridges with these mid levels. Yeah. Yes. The language matters. Yeah, for in the sure. Context. And yeah. 
when I was at this company in this corporate environment, one of the last jobs that I had, or one of the most recent jobs that I had there was working with a division that does the VA disability exams on behalf of the VA. This is where I was like, oh, cool. I had been out of the VA kind of the ecosystem for a while. And then I was coming back to it and all my VA kind of knowledge came back. And I was like, and I learned stuff about the VA doing that work that I had never learned actually working at the VA. Hmm. It was cool. So the job of this division was to secure a network globally of nurse practitioners, PAs, and physicians to do these examinations when the VA says, hey, we've got referrals in your community. We have veterans that need to be examined. Can we send them to you to be examined? So this is how the VA has been doing this work for a while. The VA used to do all these exams internally, and then it literally took an act of Congress to say, hey, VA, you're not doing these fast enough, and people are waiting a really long time to get their disability exams done. And so their solution to that was to hire basically private companies to get those physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs for them. So that's what this company did is they had a network of thousands of people doing these exams, yet the problem that we were solving is there was still a backlog of exams. Like they weren't getting done on time. And then when we took a closer look at the network, we were like only about, it was like Pareto's principle. It was like only about 20% of the network is actively working on cases right now. And the other 80% are maybe not even responding to our phone calls, (laughs) not actively taking work, or maybe they'll do one every couple of weeks. Not that useful. So my job was to help recruit providers to do this work. And oh my gosh, talk about vocabulary. It was a fight, I think. But the established language to describe NPs and PAs was mid-levels. And I'm like, we need a new word. I'm like, can we use advanced practice providers? And they're like, it took a minute for the shift to happen. But the shift happened. It was like one of my proudest moments. I was like, I single-handedly changed the vocabulary of an organization that employs hundreds of people. I was really proud of that. But how meaningful is like yeah. a legacy for future providers in that environment yeah. to feel valued and not, oh, we would have the high level providers if we could, but we'll, well take these another... mid level providers if we must. So you say that it's something that was like inferred, but that was overt in this. Oh, organization. great. They were like, this is a, an email I actually got from somebody that was like, as the quality of nurse practitioners is just not the same level. It's not at the same standard of the quality of physicians. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, I've attached multiple PubMed articles that that prove otherwise. Let me send you an annotated bibliography (laughs) of people that I have personally worked with that have proven otherwise. So because what we knew is that to bring it back to balancing like value and cost and care is we know that for what you're paying people to do this work, Physicians will only tolerate a certain amount of discomfort in learning a new thing before they're like, this isn't worth it. Yeah. You pay physicians about what they make doing any other job. Yet this job is exceedingly frustrating for physicians and for anybody because it's a huge learning curve to go Mm -hmm. up to learn how to do this work. And that was something that I started to understand really quickly is one of the key things that we recruited for was a willingness to learn how to do a new job. And I'm like, this is what nurses do every day. Absolutely. Nurse, every job a nurse has had to go to, they have, have to learn on the job how to do this job. And the job that you thought you were going to at 8 o'clock in the morning <laughs> is probably not the same one at 10 a.m. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, nurse practitioners are uniquely qualified yes. for this work, for so, for not for clinical expertise reasons, because I'm like, the way the VA wants you to do this work, it's not a direct translation from clinical practice. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to reformulate all your diagnoses and all your different things because and your assessment because how you've been doing even if you've been in practice for 20 years it's not translatable so 
as a clinician in an environment surrounded by operators, I was the only, I had a very easy line of sight to Mm -hmm. that issue. And whereas everybody around me was just like, why aren't these people producing fast enough? How come all we're seeing is like when the NPs submit work, we have to correct more of it than when the physicians submit work. Sure. That's all they saw. I could understand in their little ecosystem provided no training and no support to these providers that they're going to make mistakes. Yeah. So what I did is I designed a training program that was specifically designed for, I mean, it was interprofessionals as physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs, but still encountered a lot of physicians who were like, who thought this work was really exclusive to physicians and nurse practitioners didn't have the expertise to do it. Sure. And I'm, like, I'm like, but you're at the training program. You don't know how to do this. <laughs> so nobody knows how to do this. Yeah. You know, so we're here to de. So bringing back the demystifying approach is like, we're here to demystify mm-hmm. what the VA is looking for. And the only requirement is knowing your way around a healthcare system, knowing your way around a physical assessment, knowing the basics of delivering care. So we also said this is not a job for new grads. Yeah. But if you're a recruiter, you don't care if the person's a new grad or not. They have NP after their name. Yep. And therefore they meet the requirement. But knowing what it takes to get good at something as a nurse practitioner, I think this is like a question that you had raised was like, how long does it really take to get good, mm. feel confident yeah. in doing the work? And for me personally, I thought on each job that I ever worked in, maybe like a year. Yeah. Or two, but to answer that question for this organization, I actually did some research, and it's it's a year just to stop like having panic attacks every day at work. Absolutely, <laughs> and to be able to show up at work and feel like you belong there and that you're qualified to do the job. And anything that walks through the door, you know how to handle. Exactly, it's like yeah. one to two years. Five years is really like the nice sweet spot. Mm-hmm. But as so as a clinician, I understood that. As a nurse practitioner, I understood that. And then I had to learn how to convey that to a group of people who are so eager to hire anybody to say no to people who want to do the job and we need them to do the job. But I'm like, you're going to have to replace them in a year if you hire this person because they need the baseline experience to be able to translate an established knowledge base about how to deliver patient care and then translate that into doing this new type of niche clinical work, doing disability work. Yeah. I thought that was honestly a really fulfilling job that I had. I really loved it because I got to interact with all different kinds of Mm. nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians who have been doing this work and, uh, and doing the training is you just see all these light bulbs go off and people learning and people succeeding. And I was like, this is awesome. This is so cool. Yeah. And how validating is it like getting, finding and connecting someone to the right job? Nothing worse than being, if you're making hiring decisions or if you yourself are the person who's hired and then you realize and you get there, oh, this doesn't fit. Like this doesn't, so, yeah. this doesn't work for anybody. Mm-hmm. And how fulfilling is it to be able to identify that and really connect somebody with a place that is, that they can be successful and be really happy at. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And do good work and feel fulfilled. So this is a totally different kind of employment model that opened my eyes to different ways that nurse practitioners works. This was most of the people who are hired to do this work are hired as independent contractors because the work comes in fits and spurts. Like it's not in a lot of communities there. There's not, it's not like eight a day, every day they come in waves from a business perspective. You're like, it doesn't make sense to hire somebody full time to do this. If half the time they're sitting around doing nothing. Sure. So it's an interesting business problem to solve. But as a nurse practitioner who's looking for a different type of work, this is kind of part of our 
our pitch to nurse practitioners who are looking for clinical work. So yeah. we it was very enticing to be able to offer a job where if you did were able to do it full time, you could make two or three times as much as you would make in clinical practice. So yeah. we would say a lot of people like you do this two days a week, like you're breaking even on what you're making now, typically that market rate for NPs. Yeah. So the revenue piece of it was nice to be able to tell people, but really for nurse practitioners, that didn't really matter. It wasn't really about the money. It was about the flexibility. It was about being able to manage your own schedule. Sure. It was about having the appointment times. The shortest appointment time is 30 minutes. Yeah. So having that time to really talk. And so if you, once you get really good, like you get done, your work's done. And if you're doing like one exam, it's like seven, it takes seven minutes. So if you get really fast at it, you have all this extra time to, you're not taking your work home with you. You're not doing all this. And so just the work-life balance that was possible for people, nurses were just like, I'm all over this opportunity. And then you just, you interacting with people in a fundamentally different way and you're not providing treatment. You're doing, you're flexing your diagnostic skills and, and it's fun. I thought I to be honest, I like considered going back and getting a FMP certification so I could actually do the medical assessments. Mm. Ironically, the training program that I built was for medical providers. It wasn't for psych providers. Yeah. Because still to this day, NPs cannot independently do the psych disability exams, the mental health exams or the PTSD exams. So I was able to help with the general medical exams. And I feel I'm like, now I can do, (laughs) I feel like I could do one the way the VA wants to do one, but I don't have the right certification after my name. Yeah. And so we'll wrap up the, the, journey that is Alice's jobs, but you're doing similar kinds of work like that now, developing trainings, doing disability assessments, those types of things right now. Yeah. So the next chapter in the journey is I am between jobs right now. So the drawback of being in corporate America is you get sucked into the whims of austerity that (laughs) that corporate America is, is undergoing right now. I got swept up in a layoff situation, which to be honest, like I've applied everything that I've learned about being an independent contractor from hiring independent contractors for the past year to piecing together some other opportunities. So yeah, I took what I learned. I developed my own training program and have been able to get some clients to to use for their own providers that they're hiring to do this work. Yeah. So I've done that. I've been supporting the disability assessment process in different ways. And I'm trying to figure out other ways to be involved in that space because seeing a veteran or seeing a service member go through that process and having to outside of a formal system of care, it's really confusing. For sure. It's really stressful. And to help demystify that process for someone to make it less stressful also sounds like something that fits really yeah. Fits really well into that, yeah. that whole journey. And then the other piece that I'm pursuing right now is in health coaching. So I did, as part of my corporate gig, one of the areas that, that we were interested in was in doing some health coaching type stuff. So my supervisor was like, hey, why don't you get certified to be a health coach? And I was like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. So I did. I just graduated from the health coaching program here. And I'm sitting for the exam in three weeks. So fingers crossed. Nice. But I have to tell you, kind of, I feel like, I don't know if I needed kind of the space between being a practicing clinician or being in school to then learning some of the health coaching strategies. But I feel like I'm learning the psych therapeutic skills that we learn in school. I feel like I'm learning them in a different way that makes them more applicable. Okay. Or just makes them more practical or something. I feel like I 
am equipped better to be a better clinician now that I have that health coaching skill set than I did when I was in community mental health. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's I can I feel like I have more freedom in in creating that role to make it look like whatever I want. I'm not stuck in in every 15 minute med management model. But now I feel like I have more confidence to have a bigger toolkit to use if I ever went back to clinical practice. So the health coaching piece, too, is really transformative. I think it just speaks to we started off this conversation talking about the flexibility of nursing Mm -hmm. and all the things that you've been able to do because of this role. Had you gone into medicine or gone into something else like really pigeonholed, I know how to do this one thing and that's it. Mm -hmm. And when there is downsizing because of fears of global recession or pandemic or something like that, there's things that you can pick up and be like, all right, cool. Mm -hmm. Have all of these other skills that I can do. My frame of reference and the way that I view the world is important and is unique and people need that. So you've been able to really capitalize on all of those things in every job that you've done. Yeah, right. Episodes we've had before have been really about one particular type of role and that's my job and that's what I do. But I think Mm -hmm. yours is so unique and that you could speak to all of these different aspects of all these different kinds of work that I think people didn't even know really existed. Mm-hmm. And you probably didn't know a lot of them no when idea. you were in school. We call it the backstage of healthcare. Yeah. So that's what I, that's what I learned. That's what I named the space where we were operating because these are processes that you would not have a line of sight to to seeing as a clinician. And as such, I would, if I was hiring somebody into one of these roles, I would not expect them to come with, the innate understanding of how these evaluation processes work and what the criteria are to go to a nursing home according to every state in the country has different criteria and how to adapt to that. So you really have to tap into the really foundational stuff of what you know and apply it to these different circumstances. And so I've applied that when I was hiring people to do the VA disability work. I'm like, there is no expectation that how the VA defines these conditions, what their expectations are. If you've ever read one of these questionnaires, it looks like a lawyer wrote it. Like yeah. it's really bizarre. Probably did. Exactly. Half of how we assess people in the VA is because of lawsuits. Sure. And they're very transparent about that. So if I expect a nurse practitioner to show up and do something at the backstage of healthcare and I want them to do it well, then I'm also obligated to provide training. Yep. I have to expect, and I should anticipate that this person will be successful if they make the commitment to going up the learning curve. Yeah. And once we all accepted that as the truth about we're doing this kind of work, then I could start to get generate some buy-in and generate some investment in training programs and that kind of thing. And so that's how I've learned how to talk to operators. Is no nurse knows what these things are. Yeah. And because sometimes there's a bit of a bias that like if you're a nurse, you know everything about healthcare. Which sometimes you can use to your advantage, yep. right? You can, you're like, I'm a nurse, like I can figure it out. Cause sometimes that's true, right? Absolutely. Like we have to figure stuff out all the time. And so, sometimes it doesn't matter that you want a job in, in a different field than what you're doing. Like you can, fi- you can probably figure it out. Absolutely. But the flip side of that is that sometimes people are like, the nurse is a nurse and they don't understand like how specialized we can really be and yeah. how nuanced we can really be. And that sometimes it's not one size fits all, that, that we can be very specialized. So it's interesting kind of navigating all of that Yeah. outside of the healthcare world and more in the operational world. You feel like you're representing like your whole discipline 
when you show up as like bearing the weight of all the other nurses nurses. i know yeah but i really felt like that in the past year because i was like i felt like the whole business model of the organization changed once they accepted that it was nurse practitioners that were going to pave the way for us to resolve the backlog of exams that people were going to get high quality exams they were going to get them quickly and that we were going to be able to get everybody seen because nurse practitioners were eager to do this work. They're sure. mission driven. They love veterans. They have veterans in their families. They are veterans. Yep. They've worked in the VA. They want to give back. Like they they have reasons to do this work that have nothing to do with money. Yep. And that's how that's how we got an amazing team of NPs to do this work. So yeah. cool. Yeah. So I will take that. That will carry me forward for a while. It was such cool work. Yes. Yes. So from the backstage to the front of the stage. So I have everyone talk about music because I know we have a shared love of music, but you also recently started playing the drums (laughs) and we had coffee several months ago and we joked about starting a band. So I didn't tell you this, but I came up with some band names for us that I'm now going to read to you and you can pick your favorite one. They're in no particular order, but the first one that I came up with was Shrink 18D2. Do you like that one? Shrink 18D2. Yeah. Wait, so wait. blink 182, but shrink and then like D2 receptor at D2 the end. Receptor. You like that one? I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yo Latuda, Lady Gaba. Oh, I love that one. Gaba, Gaba. Yeah. My Oedipal Complex. Ooh. Instead of like My Chemical Romance, maybe. Mm-hmm. A personal favorite that I have Steven Stahl and the Lucrative Book Empire. Okay, that's my new favorite. The No-Shows. <laughs> Sarah McTonin. <laughs> the Cluster Bees. Ooh, yeah, that's good. Our Time in Community Mental Health. <laughs> and finally, The Erotomanic Delusion. So I'll let you think over wow, those. And those you can good. you can decide which is your favorite. And then when we start our band, we can pick one of those. Nice. So, yes. But you have songs for us, so tell us what your songs were. You were lamenting them before, but I'm sure they're wonderful. I came up with kind of a short list, because these are my most recent, the songs that, I'm still stuck on the band name, that's so funny. (laughs) I actually started a list, wait, I started a list, I'll get to you later. Okay. I did realize in my song search that there is a band called Hippocampus. Oh, like hyphenated or split up? I think it's just up? like hippocampus. Okay, so it, it could be the hippocampus, but also a place where a lot of hippos are maybe in a higher learning setting. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. Okay, I like it. Yeah. It works on I, many levels. It works on many levels. Yes. Yeah. My playlist right now is all about some vibes. Okay. It's all about some vibes. All right. The vibe that I've been feeling, so I'm running on two different vibes. One is like very frenetic because my the other hobby that I've started is rowing. Okay. So I've been rowing like at a gym, but my goal for this summer is to like row on a boat on the right. And so I've been You're going back to your like New England college roots. I know, right? Like I should have been <laughs> on the crew team when I was at when I was in college. So I've one of the tasks I had was to put together a rowing playlist. So there's okay. been a lot of foo fighters on there. So run right. okay. by foo fighters okay. has been hot on the playlist recently. All right. Because it is just like the energy behind it is there. I definitely have an appreciation for how music can like propel 
action. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of science behind that. But I love it when the science and your own personal experience come together. And so every time I'm at the gym and like I hit a really good song, I'm like, oh my gosh, the science is working for me. I'm feeling so much more motivated and I'm feeling the music is really supporting me right now. And I'm working so much harder and this is so much better with a really good song. So Run by Foo Fighters. And Dave Grohl is turning into like everyone's dad. Like we, we all need Dave Grohl as a dad, I think. We all need Dave Grohl as a dad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he makes me feel better about my drumming journey because he learned how to play drums on phone books okay. and on his teeth. Did you read his book? No, I haven't read it. He talks about learning. He would play out rhythms. He would just click his teeth together to play out oh. rhythms. And he ended up going to the dentist and the dentist is like, what the hell are you <laughs> doing to your teeth? And he, I'm basically playing drums on my teeth 24-7. That's really funny. But he taught himself how to play drums and he just organically came into it and he talks openly about that i think it's really cool mm-hmm. that he just really just loved hitting stuff and yeah. like playing and clearly just a very gifted musician multi-instrument people make me furious yeah and just how good he is at all of those things <laughs> whatever well, he plays i saw him in an interview recently and he plays guitar like he plays the drums and he's very rhythmic his, and yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's kind of he's just basically playing the drums on the guitar yeah yeah. I think he even says, like, I don't know what the chords are. He probably doesn't. <laughs> it's kind of how we all learned how to play Nirvana songs, which is, like, on tab. Yeah. Like, that's how you play. Yeah. One, three, three. Yeah. Right. Power chords <laughs> right. all the time. <laughs> okay. What else is on my playlist? So the other, so here's something in the, uh, so that's consistent with that vibe is, is I listen to a lot of Skrillex when I do work. As one does. So that's my key workout music in fact i asked our rowing instructor to put some scrollex on a playlist we were doing a benchmark where we had to row as fast as we could for until we got to two thousand meters which took me like eight minutes so it was like it's that's a long time to be rowing like as fast as you can and she snuck in some scrollex at the end which you needed to push through and i was like yes (laughs) i was like this is awesome and it got me across the finish line, and I was like, the music is serving me. Oh, my God. So Skrillex gets on the list because of that moment. Okay, perfect. Girl on Fire by Alicia Keys yeah. is on my daughter's playlist. Okay. And just, like, such a great sing-along song. Yes. It's just, so, it's just like, such an empowering, like, anthem. And it's also really fun to change the words into other things, depending on the context. Yep, I will... Leave you up to your imagination. But yes, there was some Indian food that was had and that song was sung in some way. Yeah. We sang it too with some spicy food. Our mouth was on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I yeah, I was south, but yes. <laughs> but like what so a very empowering song. How she belts out that chorus oh my gosh. is like amazing. Mm-hmm. Like no one can do it like like she can. Exactly. Yeah. Like you can't listen to that song and not just feel you can do anything. Yes. But I'm actually not really a lyrical person. Like I tend to not really listen to the lyrics i'm more about like the rhythm and the beat the song hence skrillex yeah (laughs) and like foo fighters i like but their lyrics are not no mind-blowing and ai wrote them a lot of times i know yeah Yeah. but the lyrics to girl on fire are so good and one of the phrases i wrote it down is she's living in a world and it's on fire filled with catastrophe but she knows she can fly away and then but she's got both feet on the ground so I like that paradox, knowing mm. everything around you is falling apart. It's a catastrophe. It could be really easy just to bolt and just get out and just run away from it. Yeah. But this is a person who's staying grounded 
and who's just taking it head on. Yeah. And I was like, that's badass. It like, is. That is cool. Yeah. I thought I should actually listen to the words of this. Mm-hmm. Like, really, it doesn't yeah. just sound empowering. It's a really cool, yeah. really cool lyrics. Yeah. And then the other vibe that I've really been enjoying is, okay, did you watch Portlandia? I've seen some of it. I have not watched lots of it. You know, like the opening theme song, when the show opens up, the opening credits, it's like somebody is on a bike um, and is riding through town and is shooting the opening credits as they're riding on a bicycle. So you're just seeing a lot of images going by really quickly, like out a car window, or there's one or driving by people, or it's like really, there's a lot of movement in the opening credits. And the song that's playing is a song called Feel It All Around by Washed Out. Okay. And so I looked up that song. This is back when I had, what was it, Pandora? And (laughs) where you could put in a song and then it would generate a playlist for you based on that song. And so I put in that song and it generated a playlist for me that I listened to my entire time I was doing my PhD. And so listening to that song makes me remember all those other songs on the playlist. And so I would succumb my roommate to my washed out playlist <laughs> all the time when I was in Quality Scholars because we would put it on the speakers. But the vibe is, lyrically, it's not. It's more about the music. But the vibe is that viral video that came out of the guy on the skateboard drinking cranberry juice and listening to Fleetwood Mac. Mac. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing video. Yeah, But it's so simple. Yes. Yes. So that, it's the same vibe. It's okay. the exact same vibe I get when I hear that washed out song. So that whole album is just, the whole album is the same the same vibe but that specific song but like any song to me that links a specific visual Mm. that's we don't really get music videos anymore being able to that's what's cool about i guess like with social media is you see music like visualized in different ways and so there was but there's something about all that imagery that kind of comes together Mm. makes that song stick out to me that's when tiktok was good I'm going to go back like hipster TikTok and say TikTok was awesome. When it was a dude on a skateboard listening to dreams. Alice, thank you so much for doing this. Oh my gosh. I feel like we've been gabbing for a really long time. That's what's fun about it is like, it really is just this conversation and this kind of natural conversation with people who I respect tremendously and know do such high quality work all the time and have a really unique story and perspective to tell. And I think it's so important that other people hear that because when you know what the opportunities are and what exists out there, you feel empowered. I can pave my own path. I don't have to just do this one thing and do this one thing forever because other people have trailblazed before me and can speak to, I get to do whatever I want to do. And so You've all chosen a wonderful profession to be a part of because (laughs) it is so flexible. Yes. And I just appreciate that we've been friends as long as we have and knowing that we'll probably be friends for a a lot longer. And we win our Grammy together um, for our band, My Oedipal Complex Mm -hmm. or Lady Gaba. (laughs) You need to send me that list because I wanted to make a choice. I will. Or Steven Stahl in the lucrative book empire. But I think that he probably would have something to say about it. He's about to retire though. Is he? But I feel like he's probably fairly litigious and has to like protect the brand. I have a picture with him. Do you? Yeah. He was at APNA a couple years ago. The last APNA conference that I went to. Yeah. Kristen has a picture with him too. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that as well. Yes. Yeah. He's happy to take pictures. But thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> this has been wonderful. With, ne- yeah, ne- next episode where we talk all about Stephen Stahl and his many appearances. 
But thank you so much. This has been no, so thank great. thank you for having me. This is awesome. Yeah. I love that you're doing this. This yeah. is so cool. And I hope that the folks who are listening just get, I'm sure they get so many cool perspectives listening to this. So yeah. Thank it's, you for it's doing it. It's been a lot of fun and having people talk about what they do because everybody does cool stuff. Yeah. Yes. Bye, Alice. All right. Bye.